0: Welcome to the Vulnerability Rocks podcast. You're listening to Emma Bell, and I believe that true healing starts with sharing. Welcome to the Vulnerability Rocks podcast. Uh, this is Rosalia, and we're going to be talking today about all the fabulous work that she is doing. She is a woman on a mission with a passion in her belly that bright it you know burns so bright I don't think I've ever seen someone so passionate about something and I love it and I have been lucky enough to do one of her free courses very recently which was amazing and like a breath of fresh air so I'm really excited for you guys to meet her today with me and discover more about her today with me. Um, I know that you're going to get a lot of value out of today and you're going to be blown away by what she's doing. So welcome Rosalia.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for that lovely introduction. (laughs) I've loved connecting with you so I'm excited to be here.
0: It's um, yeah, it's uh, amazing. I connected with you through somebody else in the U.S. Actually, through Instagram. I have met some incredible people through Instagram. It used to be a place for me where it could feel quite defeating, you know, like the whole sort of Instagram show, everyone putting on their best selves. You know, go back a couple of years, it was it was heavily weighted that way. And mm-hmm. there's a real shift going on in social media especially this year where the connections and the content that you can fill your feed with can be really nourishing, really educational and incredible. And Mm -hmm. we have the power to change our feed and make it an amazing space to be in. And I'm connecting with some incredible people like you and I'm really excited.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And I I find your feed very refreshing as well. So I I really liked connecting with you.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Uh, so I like to start by talking about feelings because it's vulnerability rocks. and in order for us to be vulnerable we have to tune in and tune into how we feel and trust how we feel and trust our intuition and trust what our bodies are telling us which is a lot of the lessons that I definitely didn't learn <laughs> so I'd love to start with the feelings Will with you and invite you to check in and share what you're comfortable to share, um, where you are with your feelings right now with us today.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm really grateful um, that I'm feeling um, in a place of both power and peace. And it's um, something that I really have learned to sit with more now than ever before. Um, I have always struggled with anxiety, a lot of anxiety and to be able to find peace internally is everything. (laughs) It's everything, you know? Um, but even more amazing is that sense of, um, feeling empowered. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, it's probably one of my favorite words is empowered. Um, but to, really feel like you you are in that place along with peace um is just an an, an incredible place uh to be in. and and I am grateful every morning you know now I wake up very full of both of those things and I work hard to stay in that place you know it's it's not a place that you can be in all the time mm-hmm. um, but when I am in that place I can finally recognize it and allow it to be something that i'm comfortable in which i wasn't in the past Mm -hmm. so that's where i'm at now
0: i love that and i love that you talk about empowerment because i believe that is key to healing is being able to take our power back but in a really empowering way rather than a resentful vengeful aggressive way which i've gone through that i've gone through those feelings um And I've sat with those feelings and it's pretty ugly. And to see that move and evolve into an empowerment that's full of grace and peace. And it's not always like that every day, but for the most part, is it is a much nicer space to be in. Mm -hmm. Um, And you feel far more self-assured for it too.
1: Yeah. And and I've, uh, you know, just... To touch on that for a second, I think that it's, it's important for us to recognize that all of our, you know, I'm sure you've talked about this many times, that it's, it's okay to embrace all of those feelings because they all matter. They're all there for a reason. And I, on a regular basis, probably on a daily basis, um, go through feelings of anger um, you know, I do a lot of research with the work that I'm doing. And it's very easy to fall into a place of anger all the time. It, beca- it can become toxic. Um, so what I've learned to do is to channel that anger into, like to transcend it, you know, and to, to go from there to reclaiming my own power and saying, um, I recognize this hurt and this pain in the world. And, um, you know, that there's bad actors, (laughs) but I also recognize that I can do something about it. I can take that anger and transform it into action, you know, and, and do something positive with it. And I think that that's where that reclamation of power comes in, is that you don't just give that energy away, you transform it and reclaim it.
0: Thank you. See, Rosalia has been able to articulate that far better than I think ever was <laughs> really doing, and that is why she is in this space, people. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that is exactly it. And I find it, I'm by no means an expert in this area. I'm open, um, and I find it hard to articulate um, some of the processes that I personally have gone through, um, but how you've just explain that is is perfect so thank you for that (laughs) (laughs) she's helping me all the time (laughs) even know it (laughs) um so let's talk about you um i would love you to share um with our listeners what you do and why you do it what has been your story to to arrive where you're at. So I'd love Mm -hmm. to um, let our listeners learn more about you.
1: Sure. So I'm a consent educator. And what that means is I teach people about consent, um, both adults and through those adults, children. So I educate parents. um, But I work very specifically with adult child sexual abuse survivors who are now parents. Um, it's very hard to teach this when you have trauma yourself. And the reason that I feel called and capable of teaching this is because I'm a survivor myself. Um, so I went through the experience of, um, learning how to teach this to my own children. I have three young self-identified boys. And, um, about four years ago, I hit this, uh, stage where I realized that, you know, my children were going to be out in the world I didn't, you know, wasn't going to be able to protect them the way that I, uh, you know, they, I did when they were babies, and I had to educate them um, to make sure that what happened to me didn't happen to them. Mm-hmm. But furthermore, um, you know, I had also at that time not really stepped into my own healing journey. I didn't, um, I hadn't fully confronted everything that had happened to me when I was a kid. I had a lot of blocked memories. Um, and I realized that a lot of the anxiety and the panic and the overwhelm that I was feeling when I was te- starting to teach my own children um, stemmed from a lot of my own unresolved and unhealed uh, wounds and memories and, and things like that. But even further than that, um, this is a very deeply personal journey of empowering other parents, because my mother is a survivor, my sister is a survivor, my brother is a survivor. I suspect that my father is also, um, although I don't um, keep in touch with him anymore. But this is uh, something that has affected my family uh, in so many different ways. And so, uh, you know, everyone having different experiences as to how they became survivors, and to Realize that this is not um, an issue that's talked about enough. Mm
0: -hmm. There's still a
1: lot of taboo Mm -hmm. Um, There's still a lot of shame Unnecessarily because you know, I always say this it's never a survivor's fault of what happened regardless of what happened Um, And so I realized that uh, I mean I had learned about my sister's abuse when I was about 17 years old And it it had a deep impact on me, not not even still remembering at that time what had happened to me, Um, not even knowing about my mom until many, many years later that she was able to finally disclose. Um, But just realizing what had happened to my sister and um, how it impacted her life and wanting to help other survivors. So when I was in university, I had actually gone to school to be a sex therapist because I wanted to work with abuse survivors and, and find ways to help heal. Um, but I had it, it was a very triggering journey. So my journey to what I'm doing now was very winding. It was like a very winding road. Um, I ended up in marketing for a very long time and photography and a very different world. And And when I finally had children, this is when everything kind of like came to a head and I realized this is what I've always been meant to to have done, and uh, a lot of that was just a journey of discover, you know, self discovery and figuring out why I was being triggered by these topics, wanting to help but not being able to help until I could finally do my own healing. Mm-hmm. And so, as all of that came together, both my own healing and having to teach my children, I realized that there was no one else talking about this um, through the lens of a survivor parent, mm-hmm. and to understand what those triggers are and how um, that can bring up so much and how it, you know, with my mom, she couldn't talk to us about, uh, you know, abuse prevention. One, because she didn't know about it. Two, she just was never taught about boundaries or consent. Um, And three, because of her own experience and her own trauma, she just overprotected us instead of educating us and empowering us, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very common experience for survivor parents. So, Um, that all culminated in me deciding to finally step into this, um, to dedicate myself to my healing, to learning about how to educate other parents. Um, and it's just, you know, to see the, um, the change in my own family, like to see how, uh, everyone feels like they finally have a voice to see my own children become empowered and to use consent language and to have confidence that I know, They are so much less of a target. They can speak up. They know what to do. All of that has just been a gift, and uh, you know, I just feel like I want to be able to give that to other parents as well and help them all break these, you know, intergenerational cycles of trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, yeah. So I am. I am on this mission to eradicate child sexual abuse.
0: I really am. (laughs) Mission, and she is unstoppable. And I love it. (laughs) I love it. And I'm here for it. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's what I, that's what I do. And I I wake up every day grateful that I have that uh, ability.
0: So one of the um, terms that Rosalia has shared with me is a change maker and a cycle breaker. And I love it. I love it because it's so simple, so powerful, and it it, it's exactly it's exactly what needs to happen because i think it was you that shared a statistic that said it was 30 percent more likely that a child is it 30 percent more likely that a child of a survivor will go on to be um abused in their lifetime because of the lack of education around boundaries and consent was it 30 percent you said
1: well it's uh, uh child of a survivor parent is five times more likely to be a victim of abuse. Yeah. Just, yeah, exactly. For that reason, it's just so much harder to um, go through with this education with, with your own kids. Mm -hmm. Um, They also just lack the information because they were not taught about boundaries or of course their boundaries were violated. And so you inherently develop this, Uh, you know, subconscious understanding that your body does not belong to you and that those boundaries do not belong to you. Um, So how can you teach something that wasn't taught to you that was that you didn't practice throughout your life, you know, so it's really this totally new understanding. It's like boundary repair, you know, I call it boundary repair, we need to learn how to develop, implement and uphold boundaries in order to then be able to teach them to our kids. And so survivors who have had those violations, um, they don't even recognize a lot of times that they don't have healthy boundaries or they just don't know how to implement them. So it becomes triggering to say like, how do I teach my child, right? And so this is what puts them in a much more vulnerable position. Um, And there's a whole other host of reasons, but those, you know, that's one of the main ones is just having that fear of teaching it, being triggered by the information, especially when it comes to sex ed. Like you said, you know, my mom being a survivor, she couldn't even say the word sex. Mm -hmm. Um, She was raised in a very strict Catholic home in El Salvador, and it was nothing that you spoke about. If you talked about it, it was like sin. You know, you just you may as well have had sex if you even said the word. Um, So it's just just very uh, sex negative. You know, anything related to sex was, um, you know, about violence or about getting pregnant. And the only time that you should ever think about it or do it is once you're married. Mm -hmm. So there was no talk about it at home. And that can set up um, kids, especially in today's age, to make unhealthy, um, unsafe choices because they don't know. Mm -hmm.
0: and I saw I saw an interesting post that said um saying nothing about sex in a home says a lot about sex Mm -hmm. um so by saying nothing we're actually saying an awful lot exactly Um, and for me because nothing was said I went off and found my own sex education which was very unsafe very risky um I had no idea about boundaries and this is learning about healthy boundaries has really only come to me in my thirties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I now understand the power of no conversation around sex, just no dialogue about it. I now mm-hmm. see that actually it sends powerful messages um, and it brings messages of, of shame as well because it's never exactly. spoken about it generates feelings of shamefulness around sex, um, and just a lack of awareness of how to keep yourself safe, what what situations are safe, what is okay, what isn't okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah.
1: Well, there's also um, the, the idea um, that we as a culture unconsciously carry around, um, which is the Madonna whore complex. And I talk a lot about this um, more on my other platform, my podcast platform, because, uh, you know, a lot of parents don't really make the connections until they learn about it. But there's a huge connection in the way that we don't, as a culture, deal with sex. We're, it's, you know, it's everywhere. It's in the media. It's, it's in the music that we consume. It's in the ads we watch. Like, it's everywhere, right? However, we see it outside and inside the home, we don't talk about it. So kids are left with this very confusing message. Um, they, they're not sure, you know, they're naturally curious. We are humans. Sexuality is a huge part of what we are and who we are. It's how we create life. Um, yet we don't talk about it, right? And then, um, as you said, it does send a message that, that there's something about it that we aren't supposed to talk about, but yet it's something that we want to learn about. Mm. And so with the Madonna whore concept, um, you know, where women in particular are placed on either the virginal, pure good pedestal or the bad whore shameful pedestal. And unfortunately for a lot of survivors, they re- they think that because of what happened to them, they are now in this other category of shame. And it's one of the reasons that they don't report. It's one of the reasons that um, violence keeps being perpetuated in their lives. Um, It's the reason that, you know, they don't get the right information that they need, the support that they need, the help that they need. Mm -hmm. Um, So this lack of education is really hurting a very big segment of the population that continues to perpetuate their violence because of low self-worth. They continue to make um, you know, poor decisions about their sexual health, um, because they just don't feel that they're worthy of better choices.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So it has a huge impact, um, Mm -hmm. not just on children when they're, you know, young and learning about abuse prevention, but also for, um, young adults, teenagers, as they, you know, step into relationships and learn how to, you know, um, be in healthier relationships, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something I always say when we teach consent education and we're teaching about sex ed, we're not just teaching about them to them when they're young, but what these lifelong decisions are going to, how it's going to impact them in their adult life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and also just to, um, educate them about, you know, consent as to the rights of others, not just for kids to be protected, but to also respect the rights of others, um, as they get older, you know, so it, it's a, it's a huge piece of the puzzle that we're just, we need to talk about more.
0: Yeah. Cause it's, you're right. It's not just about abuse prevention. It is about cultivating a mindset so that the young person that is going to turn into an adult <laughs> knows how to navigate their way through young adulthood. Because as I navigated into that space, my sex education was violent pornography that was being shown to me by older boys um and then they were showing me it on the tv and then saying now you do it well no one had told me any different right so I did those things and that was mm-hmm. happening at like the age of 11 and it, and so it went on you know into all sorts of because I was learning my sex education and my sex boundaries and from what other people were showing me to right. do Right. Um, at no point did I ever stop and say what do I want to do you know what does what does my body like what do I like you know that, that didn't even enter my head and mm-hmm. it's um it's very impactful and, and yes. it goes you know children they're at home they're with the, their parents but I left home at 15 so what happens when that person's no longer with the parent and that's got to be the longer term strategy
1: exactly i now
0: realize it's taken me a long time to kind of piece it all together but i see i see it weaving all the way through and the importance of it um so i i'm just i think i'm like your number one fan
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh. thank you well i i love that you um understand the importance of this work you know it's it's uh like a much bigger conversation that parents think they just real, they think, well, I have to, you know, buy a couple of books and read, you know, have a couple of conversations. But if you really want to raise an empowered adult and a a person who's going to go off into the world and, you know, have um, healthy relationships and be respectful and empower every gender, you know, regardless. Right. So if we want to, make sure that they are uh, stepping into healthy relationships for themselves right as well as everyone else in the world Um, we have to have these conversations from as early as possible and it has to be part of the culture in the home it has to be part of the parenting style not just a small little component like this is a really big conversation and it ultimately has to do with our rights our understanding of our autonomy and um, you know, if we look at so many issues in the world today, it really comes down to those things, right? Our our innate rights, and being able to educate kids about that as early as possible has a tremendous impact on their on, on their psychology, of their understanding of other people, um, and how we have to also view children, right? It's a real, it's a big relearning of um, how we treat children, which are the most vulnerable in our society. And we want to raise them with as least trauma as possible because that just keeps perpetuating, right? The more trauma we grow up with, the more trauma we create in the world, mm-hmm. a lot of times unknowingly. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's about waking up and becoming more conscious parents as well as um, you know, weaving consent parenting into it.
0: I'd like to dig a bit more into um, teaching consent in the home. Because, and I've, I've done your uh, course and I've done a lot of um, reading, and I'm, I'm understanding it a lot more. And I'm understanding the subtleties of teaching consent, in as much mm-hmm. as it's not a case of, oh, my daughter or son is hitting puberty, I better sit down, get the book, and have the talk, and then guess what? We're over it. Mm-hmm. That actually the practice. Of teaching and empowering our children about consent and boundaries starts straight away. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what I'd love to talk to you about because I think um, this. When I first started learning about this, th- the minute I started reading your content, I was like, "Of course!" Oh, I just literally I was sitting there on my phone going, "Of course." of course, this makes sense. Like, of course, (laughs) you know, but until you see it and someone tells you and helps you to shift, um, that narrative and look through a different lens, um, it's just something you don't see. So tell us how teaching about consent starts and how old tell me. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you know, people always say, what age do I start? And I would say, if you can start From before birth, that would be amazing, you know, uh, which is really the most beautiful place to start because you're doing a lot of your own healing and and inner work to understand how you would have liked to have been raised, right? And how amazing would it have been if you were given that power over yourself? Um, A lot of parents are raised in authoritarian homes where, you know, the parent told you what to do, a child is to be seen and not heard. You know, all of those things, right? Um, When we shift, (laughs) yeah, because I was raised like that too. (laughs) And um, when you make this shift to understand that if we start with the idea of respecting this other being as a being, not as our property, but as their own autonomous little person who's already come with their personality intact. And we have to just foster a supportive environment for them instead of trying to mold them into what we want, right? And restricting them and telling them what they should do or shouldn't do. Um, We, number one, give them the ability for their personality to really flourish. But also we are teaching them that they have the right over their body at all times. And this includes when they're two years old, you know, a lot of parents are like, what do you mean? I have to, you know, for safety reasons, I have to do all these things. Well, when it's a matter of life or death, you know that it's a matter of life or death and you're going to, you know, you need to be that guiding parent who's going to protect your child. That's ultimately your number one job. But when it comes to, you know, even when we're changing a diaper, Mm -hmm. the way that we speak to a child and say, okay, now I'm going to, you know, clean you here. And you start using even the right terminology for their body parts, instead of making it a shaming thing where you're like, you know, coming up with a cute name for it Mm -hmm. um, because you're afraid to say it, or it was just never said in your home, or you think that there's, it's a dirty word. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you have to like re you have to examine your own values around sexuality first, right. To be able to then say, okay, we're going to clean your penis now. And, you're, you're talking to your child, explaining to them what you're doing instead of just manhandling them. Mm-hmm. And that may seem like a really tiny thing, but it makes a big difference because as you keep doing that every day, your child grows into an understanding that you have to communicate what your intention is, what you're doing, why you're doing it. And that becomes the expectation, right? So um, a perfect example, and I'm going a little bit off map here, but just follow me for a second. So the, the case with Larry Nasar, who was the doctor, the Olympics, uh, U.S. Olympics doctor. I watched it. Yeah. So he was doing things that these girls didn't totally feel was right. But, you know, they were used to being physically handled all the time. If we created a culture where our child, from the day they were born, always understood and expected that another adult would need to explain or ask permission for any physical interaction, Mm -hmm. that doctor would not have been able to do what he did. Mm -hmm. Because that child would have understood from day one, you know, what was okay, what was not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if all of these, you know, if all of our culture started operating in that way, adult respecting children children expecting to be respected you know to understand that you have to ask permission you can't just hug me you can't just grab me you can't just do whatever you want just because i'm little just because i'm a child i know my rights. Mm-hmm. Um, if we created you know a culture like that um, a lot of these violations even as we grow up into adulthood where then we go into the workplace and there's harassment and somebody grabs you and you were never taught as a child that you can say no. Well, now in the workplace, you're not sure what to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we grew up in a culture where, you know, we always gave that respect to a child, if somebody does something, that child knows they've practiced over and over and over throughout their childhood to say, that's not okay. Excuse me, what are you doing? Like, did you just try that? Like, you know, they would have so much more, Um, assurance that someone doing that to them is wrong and be able to call it out because throughout their life, they were told to speak up when something was wrong. Yeah. So when we follow that journey, you know, from birth to adulthood, to see all the ways in which this impacts children's understanding of physical interactions, um, we are going to be developing a generation that will no longer tolerate any kind of physical boundary violation because they have been empowered from day one to speak up Mm -hmm. and to, and you know, for a parent to say it is always okay for you to say no. Yeah. So when we can, you know, like, like I get goosebumps thinking about it, like to see a whole generation of kids that can, you know, ask, they know how to ask for consent. A lot of kids don't know how to ask for consent. And that's a biggie. Never practiced it. Yeah. And so they think, oh, well, it's uncool to ask. How am I going to ask? That's going to break the mood. Well, if from day one, that communication has been taught and you hear it and you speak it and you, um, you know, practice it physically right at home, it just becomes the norm. Instead mm-hmm. of feeling like the weird thing that, you know, kids are going to do. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, like if we can start from day one, mm-hmm. that's amazing. If your child is eight years old and you've never taught it, you can start today. It, it's never, ever, ever too late. Your child could be
0: 18 and you can still have this conversation. Oh, yeah. If if I'd have had some of those lessons at 18, um, then yeah, it, I could have saved myself being raped i could have saved myself being sexually abused because that all happened you know when i was 19 20 21 yep. um, so it's ne- i agree it's de- definitely never too late um, Yeah. anybody that is listening thinking oh my child's already gone through puberty they're at university it's it's not too late
1: it's never too late and and you know universities are one of the places where a lot of sexual assault happens because, you know, they're, they're out of the house, they're out of the home. They're making decisions about, you know, where they go and they're partying or, or you know, e- even not necessarily partying. It can happen anywhere, right? It can happen in broad daylight. Um, but then they would know that it's not their fault, like that it's never their fault. Yeah. Um, you know, I, when I was 17, I was date raped and I believed it was my fault. I never reported it. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that I had put myself in that position, that I deserved that happening to me, that uh, maybe I said something that led that person to think that I wanted it um, Mm -hmm. because I froze and I didn't know how to say no, um, because I didn't understand that consent could be withdrawn. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like all those things. If I had someone tell me when I was 17, you know, it's okay to, to report it. It's okay that you can talk about it. Um, it's not your fault, you know, like all of those things would have made a huge difference. I carried that for a really long time. And and it wasn't until I was, um, I think, 26, that I for the very first time, upheld my own boundaries in a, uh, you know, in a a sexual uh, situation. Mm. And I remember that time very clearly, because it was the first time that I was that I felt empowered enough to say I don't want to do this anymore Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: stop something from happening and so game-changing it was it was an amazing revelation that I do have power and I can Mm -hmm. say yes or no to something and um, you know I I tried to be in safer relationships after I was 17 but you still never fully feel safe um, with anyone because you're just hoping that that person respects you instead of standing your ground and saying I deserve to be respected it was a very different experience so if we can teach that to kids yeah it would make it would so much change in their lives
0: so give me some examples of things that parents can do with a young family let's start with the young family first um to teach consent without having to because i also understand that what some people hear when they think about abuse prevention sex education and consent and teaching kids boundaries is they hear oh my goodness i've got to teach my four-year-old about sexual intercourse and i'm just not ready for that yeah (laughs) but it's not about that so let's I'd love to be able to give some workable examples to the listeners of how we teach consent without actually having to teach about full-blown sexual intercourse and all of the other things that go with (laughs) sexual and erotic intimacy (laughs) from, you know, five years old. I'd like to give them something that they can, like, work with. So I see a couple. One was about tickling and the other one was about kissing relatives, which I love, Mm. and I'd I'd love to hear um, your thoughts around that.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we tend to think that when we have to teach sex ed, we're teaching it from the perspective of an adult, and kids don't have any of those perspectives, right? They're looking at body parts and they have no idea what those body parts do, and they're just curious and learning about themselves, right? Not about interactions with other people. So when we're teaching about consent, we're really, it has nothing to do with sex or sexuality. Um, When we're teaching about boundaries, it just has to do with bodies, right? So our body versus someone else's body, respecting space, respecting um, what someone can or can't do with you. So when I tell parents, you know, this consent education starts with things as day to day as parents tickling kids, um, you know, and kids just, again, being used to being physically handled, right, by their parents. When we start to make the shift and say, you know, a, a really simple example could be, we typically with a young child will, will say, okay, you know, time to brush your hair, come here so I can brush your hair. We're not really giving them a choice. So that goes against body autonomy, and which is at the heart and the basis of consent. So when we make a shift to ask a child if we can brush their hair, or we can ask them Um, what they would, you know, what what they want to, like how much they want to eat, are they full and respecting those little things about their body autonomy. Mm -hmm. That is at the heart of consent. And we're, you know, we're teaching them essentially that we respect their body rights. Mm -hmm. So that's the foundation that we need to start with when we think about consent education. And the second one is then interacting with other people. So one is, you know, the consent, respecting your body rights. But then two is, Um, expecting others to respect your body rights in terms of um, friends, family, uh, anyone, you know, peers, anyone that they're interacting with. So what that means is understanding that since your body belongs to you, you can develop the boundary to say, I am okay with hugs or I am okay with kisses right now with this person. Maybe in five minutes, I won't want a hug. So you have to always ask. And when we empower kids to know that that should be the expectation and then also educating the other adults in their life, that's when we're starting to teach consent. Because consent is really permission. It's asking permission to do something to you or with you. And when we teach teach kids these basics, that means that when, you know, grandpa comes over and they want to automatically give you a hug, you have the right to say, no, thank you. How about a high five? Mm -hmm. Or... I just don't feel like hugging today. How about, you know, um, a kiss on the cheek, you get to decide what that physical interaction can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, it doesn't have to be about sex at all. But at the same time, when we are talking about sex and sexuality, it does start very young. And it starts with simply learning about your body. That's the foundation of sex and sexuality is knowing your body, understanding, you know, what those, what those body parts are, um, as they develop learning what those body parts do, that they do feel good, what the functions of those body parts are, Um, you know, you can explain what an erection is, you can under, you can explain what self exploration is, Mm -hmm. Um, then you get into terms of body safety around, um, you know, private parts, uh, what that means. Uh, exploring in private not with anyone else Mm -hmm. you know you you start to layer those pieces of information so it doesn't have to be all in one shot Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have to start with sex at all body Mm -hmm. safety has to do with sexuality and the foundations and you know it's taught in an age-appropriate way Mm -hmm. but consent and body rights Mm -hmm. is taught from day one and that has nothing to do with sex it just has to do with your rights and your boundaries
0: but it's a great foundation yes. for the talks that come later Exactly. If you get those subtle things where the child feels like they have some right and some autonomy around the simplest of things, then the they're already in that mind frame of, I have choices. Right. Um, and I love giving the child the choice, you know, so as a parent, which I'm not yet, you know, that I'm actively trying for a family, but I'm not yet. Um, but I am determined to be a sex positive parent in terms of how I teach. And also boundaries is just like this. It's been this revelationary thing for me because I just didn't know they existed (laughs) Mm -hmm. and until until my 30s so for me I'm really it's like my favorite word I just think I look at situations I think lack of boundaries and right. I'm not at my situation <laughs> you know my for me me overstepping other people's boundaries and vice versa so I just really firmly believe the younger it starts the better it is mm-hmm. um, and giving the child the option of, you don't always have to hug and kiss. It can be a high five. It can be a, a wave. If, if you can have no contact, right? Like, but so as a parent, would you suggest to say that to your children? You know, when we greet people, friends or family, you could maybe choose from one of these three or four things. Like, is that how you would have that conversation?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's important to, um, educate them and model it as well so if your child is really young and they are just learning about you know that etiquette of greeting people like for my kids i always get this uh fear from parents that they say well i don't want to raise a rude child Mm -hmm. well you're not going to raise a rude child if they acknowledge that person right because really what we're saying is when you're meeting someone you acknowledge that person you recognize them right Mm -hmm. Um, But that doesn't mean or need to include physical interaction. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it's really just about teaching the child that, like you said, they have options um, that also they get to say what those options are. It's not that, you know, someone else chooses those options and they have to pick from them. It's ultimately about that freedom to choose Mm -hmm. and you know, that goes along with everything else. Like we we say when we're teaching abuse prevention education, the term that everybody likes to say is your body belongs to you. Absolutely, it does. But then as parents, we contradict it by telling them to finish all their food, by telling them what they have to wear, mm-hmm. by telling them that they have to, you know, do these things and, you know, brush their teeth and brush their hair and do, you know, all these little things they're all important. And I'm not saying to parents like, oh, you know, don't worry about doing any of those things. Mm -hmm. But it's about patience and communication. And it's about helping our children to understand their decisions, to understand that when they have freedom, that comes with responsibility. So we're teaching all these things. It's not just to say, if you feel like brushing your hair, brush your hair. If you don't, don't. Um, You know, we want to encourage good hygiene and all of those things, right? But we also need to make sure that our words match our actions. So if we're going to say your body belongs to you, we have to help them become empowered with what that actually means. And what it means is you get to make this choice and I'm going to help you make a a healthy choice by Mm -hmm. talking to you about it and explaining. And that does take a little bit more work. But in the long run, what we're doing is empowering our child, not just for today, but for the long term future. Um, So it's really a shift in parenting, you know, which is why I call it consent parenting, because it's not just abuse prevention education. It's really um, seeing your child as an independent person who you're helping them to make good choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it comes down to all of those things. But make sure you're not just saying your body belongs to you and then contradicting it with your actions mm-hmm. because in the long term, a predator can come back to that and manipulate that situation because they're, you know, they're seeing you as a parent who's loving, who's caring still making them do these things, right? So when they are in a situation with a predator who has groomed them, who has gained their trust, has gained their love and affection, has gained um, you know, that, that trust factor, that predator can still force them to do something and uh, you know, they're almost like a parent figure. Yeah. So if we as parents don't make that distinction and do the work of like, really walking the walk and not just talking the talk, Yeah. Um, You know, then we're really empowering them because we we tend to think that predators are people that our children don't know or someone that we can very easily spot. We're going to know, you know, And, and so because we know everyone in our child's life, they're safe. But that's just not true. And we really need to make sure that we are giving our kids all of the tools necessary to spot that and to not, you know, to know Even my own parents don't, you know, like touch me whenever they want. So why is this person doing it? Yeah. And they'll be able to say
0: something. Yeah. And just want to hop back to language. So about using the correct names for our anatomy. um, I read somewhere that a child one story that a child had been telling their teacher that this person had been stroking there and there was a cute name at the end. Um, so the teacher presumed it was a pet that they were referring to, but actually on further investigation, it became you know, apparent that this pet's name was actually just a pet name for their vagina. And that the child was trying to communicate that this action was going on, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So this is where it becomes, there's two things that I can see in this. One is that because then the child's able to articulate somebody has touched me here and use the correct words and get that message to you efficiently and quickly. Should they ever sadly be in that space? And two, the flip of it is this in as i've grown older is if our parents give our private parts that will become sexual parts of us in sexual relationships depending on where we've all come from and what names pet names are vagina's penises and breasts and whatever has been given We could end up in a triggering environment in a sexual situation with somebody where someone might use a word that we then associate with a parent child relationship that then inadvertently brings shame into whatever that sexual act is that we're doing. So for me, there's like two ways that this can Mm -hmm. fall quite badly uh one is the lack of being able to communicate abuse if it is happening and two is as you get older i don't know like yeah if in if in if in a if in a romantic sexual relationship you decide to give each other's parts cute names i think it should be kind of reserved for that and not for you know a parent and a child type of relationship because it can bring this like ugh, ugh, shame feeling when you should be embodying being an adult, being sexual with your partner and yeah, you know. So yeah. I see the two kind of downfalls of pet names for vaginas, penises and breasts. Like I just, <laughs> I can't be yeah. good from it really.
1: Yeah, no, there, there isn't uh, really anything positive um, that comes from that. And there is actually a third piece um, in addition to what you said which is that what children then learn is that the fact that there is a different name that parents are using and they don't use the right terminology means that there's something shameful about that body part. Mm -hmm. And typically what that leads to is uh low self-worth around those body parts right that there's some sense of shame that there's some sense of like those parts are dirty i mean we even call them that right like naughty bits or you know lady parts or like instead of of just being able to call them what they are i know for myself because of how i grew up it took me a really long time to be comfortable saying the word vagina and you know my mom still to this day has a hard time saying it like it's just the culture that we grew up in and again we're saturated by sex and sexuality everywhere but yet we can't speak about it so when it comes to names if we aren't using the right terms and kids grow up with that they grow up with a sense of underlying shame around those body parts um, that they can't fully explain why they don't really know why, and then how that plays into sexual relationships is that they may feel shame um, in a relationship. Maybe they, um, you know, start to compare themselves to other people or what they're seeing in porn, um, which are not, you know, real representations, of, obviously, of sex and sexuality. But if kids don't know that that just adds another layer to it. Um, And then, we know, as adults, we're using other euphemisms, which a lot of times are also negative. You know, a lot of times words um, that represent the vulva or the vagina are used in a derogatory way. So there's just all of this stuff that if we don't clarify it very early can really spiral into all of these other negative ways of seeing our, our bodies, you know, and- one of the things, again, to bring it back to predators, is that predators, um, number one, if they recognize that a child is not being given sex education, they see that as a gap. They, they, they know that a child isn't being educated, and it is a signal to them that this is a child that could be targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one. Number two is that if a child, um, you know, as they develop, as they get older, um, has low self-worth about their body, Again, it's another way for them to find um, a gap that they can exploit by being the one who is, you know, giving them compliments, reassuring them about their body because they, they can see that this child has low self-worth, isn't, you know, isn't someone that can talk to their parents about, you know, their body or, or their sense of self or sexuality. Um, so they look for those things. And again, this is another reason why it's so important to educate kids about all of those pieces.
0: Mm-hmm um so what I'd like to do is I'd like you to tell our listeners where they can find you because I've done um one of your courses and it's amazing and I know that you um do go through the lens of a survivor parent but even so um I still there's so much in there that is useful for any parent and any adult that has children in their lives so even for me um i'm known as auntie emma because i'm not a mum yet i'm known as auntie emma to lots of children <laughs> mm-hmm. and um i have been guilty of when they're small you know, I'm, i live i live abroad from them and when i see them i'm so excited you know i just i want to hug them and love them and i have been guilty of saying and i you know, since doing your course, I now understand the subtleties of how that can land. And my behavior will certainly change of saying, Oh, it doesn't matter how big you get, I'm still going to squish you and cuddle you. (laughs) At no point have I said, can I, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's coming from nothing but absolute love. And I love these kids with my whole heart. However, um, through loving, we can we can, we can send out subtle messages that we're not even sending out. And I recognize that I'm, I've been guilty of saying that. I can't think of the amount of times I've said that to those little kids. Like, Oh, you know, it doesn't matter how big you get, I'm going to squish you and cuddle you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I think I even said, with you like it or not, you know, right. <laughs> cool. you know, now I'm learning and I'm thinking, Oh no. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And it's, it's, you know, like I said, um, a lot of times, I mean, they're, we're all very well-meaning and we don't realize, right? Um, and and I think that we can always as adults go back and, and say, you know, we're going to change. I've learned these new things and I want to make sure that I'm, you know, giving you the opportunity to say yes or no to something. Um, but yeah, so there's so much to learn. This is why I say, you know, I don't want anyone to feel like it's overwhelming because you can start small and put something little into practice and then you'll see how it all starts to shift and evolve because you're awakening to this new understanding of your interactions with children with your own children with other people's children um you know whether you have kids or not if you you, if you're a caring adult in and you're in the life of another little person Mm -hmm. you can be a support person for them a safe person for them um, so there's, there's so many ways to start on this journey, you know, without having to feel like you have to do it all in one day. Well, even just um, a,
0: my example, you know, it's a, it, it's a yeah. shift for me, you know, I won't be saying that to those kids again, you know, <laughs> yeah, I have always, uh, the one thing that, and that has come from my mum actually is where I've never, sometimes people will say, go on, cause they, cause they haven't seen me for ages go on, go and give auntie Emma a kiss. And I say, no, no, If they want to, they can. And if they don't, they don't have to. And that's cool. And that's one thing that I've learned. You know, my mum has learned that for me. She's always been super bounded in the no contact kind of arena. So she'd always be like, no, no if you do you do if you don't you know so I've picked that up from her so but in terms of the once they hug me do I want to put them down again I'm not very good at that (laughs) right so I need to I need to reshift that a bit that's okay and I'm and I'm pleased to be learning it um I'm pleased to be learning it before I'm a parent but I'm also pleased to be learning it because there are lots of adults that are key adults in other children's lives like I am and um, you know, I'm blessed to have these amazing families around me, but I also recognize that comes with responsibility. So um, I'm really glad to be learning this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I, if if anyone wants to connect with this work, um, you can just go to consentparenting.com. Uh, that's my website. I have uh, lots of free resources there as well. Um, I have workshops, courses, and memberships also. So there's lots of ways to learn. Um, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram, which is also the handles are Consent Parenting. Um, on Facebook, I go live once a week. And I'm also now starting to do um, uh, episodes uh, live in Spanish on Thursdays on Facebook. So anyone who speaks Spanish can, can check that out. Um, and yeah, I'm very active on Instagram, which is how we met. So people can find me there as well.
0: Thank you for today thank you so much um i'm so pleased to have been able to record this episode with you because it's something really close to my heart and i also know that it's going to resonate with so many people and help them to understand that you know starting to teach consent in the home doesn't have to start with the really hard conversations it can start with simple things go and find rosalia's uh content i'll put all of her handles in the show notes so you guys can find her um i'm following her and I'm learning stuff multiple times a day she's super active in posting and she gives she gives she gives and she gives and she gives because she is a woman on a mission and uh, I'm here for it Thank (laughs) thank you thank you for listening and I look forward to introducing you to my guest in my next episode until then don't forget to take care of you